If you don't mind, let's be turning in our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 4. As you received the liturgy last evening, you notice, perhaps if you took time to think over it, that we were going to initially stop in verse 16 today. But I really believe to get the full impact of this chapter, we need to cover the whole thing. Now, we'll try to do it in the same amount of time so that we don't go too awful long. But I feel like if we break it up, we're going to miss some of the flow of this passage. And we're going to end on a very dark note today. And so, instead of doing that, we're going to cover the whole chapter. And this chapter proclaims to us that humanity has rebelled against God. But that God, in His faithfulness, continues to promise and to fulfill what we will call rescue. Now, I guess in reality we could entitle any sermon we ever encounter Rebellion and Rescue because in reality that's what we're always talking about. We're always examining those ways in which we do not please God and we're always casting ourselves back on Christ for He is our only hope. But over the next couple of weeks in particular, we're going to look at this idea. We're going to look at the Scriptures through this lens that humanity has rebelled against God and yet He does not leave them there. If you think about it, that's what we saw in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 as well. God effusively, abundantly blessed His people. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 proclaim with great clarity that God is gracious. But in chapter 3, of course, we know that humanity set aside all of God's glory and they sought their own. But even in this, God came after His wayward prodigal children. In Genesis chapter 4, we begin to see that things don't get better. And though God promises that He will bring rescue to His people, and though He still has very high expectations for them, things get worse rather than better. So in many ways, what we find in Genesis chapter 4 is that things begin to fall apart even more. The fabric of humanity begins to disintegrate immediately. In keeping with that, let's read Genesis chapter 4, and then after we do so, we're going to take some time to examine in detail and see what God has to say to us. I want you to keep in mind as we read together that this portion of God's Word has been being read, taught, meditated upon for thousands of years now. Every once in a while, it's wise for us to just pause for a moment and consider that. In God's providence and in His kindness, He has left us His Word. And for thousands of years now, God's people have been reading this Word, have been being taught this Word, and it holds just as much importance for us as it does for all of our forefathers, those who walked with God. So let's read it today in confidence that God has a word for His children today. This is His word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methusael, Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word, and may he add blessing to us as we have read it. The first thing I want us to see today, in particular, verses 1-7, through seven, is the power of sin. God comes to Cain, and of course you're familiar with his story, and says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at the door like a lion, and it wants to pounce on you. It wants to rule over you, to devour you. This probably gives us an understanding of why in 1 Peter chapter 5, as Peter writes that epistle, he says, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Moses, though he is not speaking specifically of Satan here, he does personify sin. Why was this such a struggle? Well, we know already from Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that God had warned Adam and Eve that if they rebelled against him, if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. And as we talked about that tree, the tree, though a literal tree, symbolized autonomy, self-rule. Is it bad to know the difference between good and evil? Is it bad to be aware of things that are good and of things that are bad? 
No. Perhaps over time, God would have taught Adam and Eve all those things as a good and kind and wise father. But they hurried that up when they ate the fruit on their own, and they left God out of the equation. They sought to establish their own moral compass, their own perspective on the world. And apart from God's power to sustain them, apart from God's wisdom to give them discernment as they looked at their world, apart from God's love and grace which permeated every fiber of their being, now they were on their own. And truly though they were not organically dead, they were dead in their souls. And everything about them changed. Whereas before they had the power not to sin, now they lost that power. We've already seen at the end of chapter 3 that God told them that they would pursue their own way and it would be disastrous. And now in Genesis chapter 4, we see the further fruit of that. Cain is a person who is a worker of the ground, certainly an honorable profession. His brother Abel watched over the livestock, particularly the sheep, an honorable profession as well. Remember when I was a kid, I used to think that God did not accept Cain's offering because it was just vegetables, that meat somehow was better, that somehow because of the structure of the Mosaic law and later, of course, that Christ would be our Passover, that somehow there was something better, more holy, more righteous about an animal sacrifice. That's not what's going on here. In fact, in the Mosaic Law, there are sacrifices, if you will, of grain. There were times where when Israel harvested the fields, especially at the beginning of harvest time, that they would bundle together sheaves of wheat and so forth, and they would wave them, demonstrating that these things came from God and they were sacrificing them back to God. So there's nothing more essentially righteous, good, commendable about a lamb than vegetables or grains. The problem seems to be one of two things. Either that Cain did not bring his best, and perhaps the way that Moses writes indicates that. You notice here that whenever Abel's offering is mentioned, that it says that he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. It was the best thing he could bring. But there's really no qualifier to Cain's offering. It doesn't say that it was the first of the harvest. It doesn't say that it was his best. So it could well be that the reason that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice is because Cain brought the scraps, whereas Abel brought his very best. It might, however, be something else, perhaps even more subtle, implied in the text. And that is that Abel brought these things by faith, not believing that the offerings themselves were commendable, but that a contrite, broken, humble heart was the issue, and that Cain did not do that. So whether it's the nature of the sacrifices themselves, that Cain did not bring his best and Abel did, or the heart behind the sacrifices, Moses does not clarify But probably for one of those two reasons, God looked down upon this sacrifice and it demonstrated something wrong with Cain. 
And already we can see the fruit of a rebellious race coming into full bloom. Whereas Adam and Eve had rejected God with open eyes, now their sons rejected God with fallen hearts. But God had not left them without grace. We already saw at the end of Genesis chapter 3 that He robed these two boys' parents with grace. And seemingly, by Abel's response, he himself was a recipient of grace. And if it's true, perhaps, that really what's going on here is that Abel has a broken, humble heart and Cain does not, it demonstrates, hopefully, that Adam and Eve were at least teaching the right things. There's a lot of conjecture here, but what was it like to grow up in Adam and Eve's hut or tent or whatever it was? Seemingly, they had to have told the story. They didn't keep it secret. Our God is gracious. He's kind. Look at everything you see around you, Cain and Abel. God made all these things. They're beautiful, right? Guess what? They used to be more beautiful. You see mom and dad fighting? We didn't used to do that. It seems, it seems a long time ago, even though it really wasn't, and we forget just how good it was, but we remember it was good. Dad didn't have to work so hard. Our children, had we not fallen, would never have fought. We had everything we needed. We lived in paradise And the God who who brought paradise to pass, the one who made it all, He used to come down and talk to us. Cain, you know when you sin and you feel bad about it? We, we, We never used to feel like that. Abel, you know how hard it is to obey us? It didn't used to be like that. I wonder if Adam and Eve were clear in their instruction. I wonder if they compared their current state with the former. I wonder if they helped their boys interpret their fallenness, their brokenness, their propensity towards sin, the difficulty with worshiping the one true God. I wonder if they helped the boys interpret life through that lens of the former and the present, but of the promise to come. Seemingly they did because... Abel sacrificed his best. He had never tasted the perfect. He had tasted the bitterness of a fallen heart, living in a fallen world, in a fallen home. But because he sacrificed, there had to be be a hope that things were going to get better. His mother, at private times, seemingly took Abel aside and said, Abel, one day a seed will come. And one day, all the brokenness that we're now experiencing, it will be undone. And perhaps, if we're really being careful, that's really what Eve was saying when Cain was born. Will it be this seed, Lord God, that will bring it to pass? Will will this seed crush the opposer, the Satan? Will, Will this seed set things right? Maybe it would be Abel. But as they saw it wasn't them, 
They were looking forward to when it would come. And Abel sacrificed in hope that, that the fallenness of their home, of their family, would one day be undone, maybe by his son or his grandson. So Adam and Eve had to have been doing some teaching here because Abel's doing the right thing, but one was not. Why was Cain so angry? Well, seemingly because God was happy with his brother and not happy with him. Now, this should have led Cain to repentance. Abel's righteous lifestyle should have caused Cain to consider his own deficiencies, his own fallenness, and said, this is a better way. But he went the opposite direction. The unrighteousness of his heart was was welling up inside of him. But notice here, God in His mercy comes to him and He warns him. He did the same thing for their parents. And maybe this was God's custom even to this point. To take these newly fallen people and to keep coming after them and to keep teaching them and to keep attempting to restrain them from the worst of things. The power of sin shows up very starkly here in this passage. And it's contrasted, of course, between Cain the unrighteous and Abel the righteous. The writer of Hebrews mentions this in chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel seemingly is is living opposite of how his parents first sinned. They, they sought autonomy from God. Abel is seeking to live in God's care. And through this, God commends him. But starkly, Cain does the opposite. And God even came and warned him again. Cain, don't do this. Let me help you. But as we see in the ensuing verses, Cain didn't listen. So in verses 1-7, through seven, we see the power of sin. It's personified. It's seeking to to come after us and to destroy us. But in verses 8-16, through we see the consequences of sin. Cain did not listen to God. He gave in to his impulses. Cain did not want to follow God's way. He did not want to trust God as his brother did. Instead, he wanted to seek to rule himself, to seek to conquer things on his own and look at the disastrous consequences that happened. His anger led to the first homicide. In fact, Jesus comments on this in Matthew chapter 23, that the blood of all of those, all the way back to Abel, that have been murdered, cries out for justice. But that wasn't on the mind of Abel's brother at this point. Cain was so overcome with rage, with jealousy, with frustration with God, that he sought his own way, And it led him to a disastrous, horrible choice. To try to get behind this for a moment, to kind of get down into the root beneath the soil. Why why was Cain like this? We know from the New Testament that Satan is called a murderer. A murderer from the beginning. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, Satan truly is the anti-God, the original anti-God. 
and all those who are his children. And Jesus says that sinners have Satan as a father, will emulate their father. And if Satan is a murderer seeking to destroy, his children certainly will be as well. Satan is the original anti-God who lived opposed to God, but he's also the original sinner who fell and didn't trust God. And Cain was much the same way. If you think about it, Adam and Eve in some ways emulated this as well. Now, Adam and Eve did not directly commit homicide, but in a subtle sense, maybe they did. So they didn't take the jawbone of a donkey or a club or a spear and kill one another. But through their lack of love, through passivity, they allowed the other to die. Adam should have risen up and crushed the head of the serpent himself, but he didn't. In weakness and passivity, lack of love, he allowed his wife to die. And she the same with him. So the root behind Adam and Eve's passivity and now Cain's active rebellion which led to murder. See, he got worse. He was, he was one step worse than his parents. We find that really satanic influence shows up. God is a God who gives life. We saw that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God gives life and creates all things well. He blesses. But the anti-God destroys, tears down, disintegrates, ruins. And as we look into our own hearts, we see both. Those who are God's people cherish life, recognize that it comes from God. I did not plan this today, but this is one of the beauties of motherhood. I want you to to feel this today, ladies. God, through you, brings life. You emulate the glory of your life-giving Creator as you do the same. There's beauty behind that. There's design. God glorifies Himself through you. But Cain was the opposite. Cain lived autonomously, and Cain became a destroyer. Much like his father, Satan, so focused upon himself that it led him to disastrous decisions. But notice God comes again. God shows up just like he did before and just like he had done for Cain and Abel's parents. Sometimes speaking curses, sometimes speaking blessing. In this particular case, he asks a question again just like he did with Adam and Eve. And by the way, this is totally parenthetical and a bit of a rabbit trail, but, but learn from this principle, especially if you're a parent. Learn to talk to your kids, but ask them questions. It reveals so much. And learn to do this with each other rather than accusing, ask questions. And if there's sin there, usually questions bring these things out. And that's what God's doing here. He's exposing. So he says, where's Abel, your brother? Not because he didn't know. But he wanted Cain to be exposed, and Cain lies. Remember what Adam and Eve did when God came to them? Where are you, he says. But they're hiding. They're already blame-shifting, blaming each other for the fall, hiding from God, 
covering up with the fig leaves trying to cover their lack of righteousness. They're deceitful. And that's what Cain is. It's irrational. We know from things that Cain says in just a moment that we'll examine that he believed that God was the creator. He was the almighty. He was the sustainer of all things. But he still lies to God. That's crazy. But it demonstrates to us just how irrational sin is. You see, the power of sin that we saw in verses 1-7 through now leads to further disastrous consequences, leading to irrationality. So how does God respond? Your brother's blood. Your brother, whom I created in my image, is crying out to me. And though I am a God of grace, I am a God of justice. And now, because of your sin, this ground that you must work to bear fruit for your very sustenance, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You see, so now sin gets worse, and now consequences get worse. Remember we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 and verses 18, that that God said to Adam, now work will be hard. Work is not a curse, just hard work is. And now the son of Adam, Cain, his sin is amplified and his curse is amplified. Life will be very difficult for Cain. God's going to drive him away from his presence. Cain feels this. And he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He's not confessing and he's not repenting. He's just sorry about the consequences. And frankly, he's mad about the consequences. He doesn't want to confess what he did. He doesn't want to repent and turn from it. He just doesn't want the worst that's coming his way. I think a lot of people are like this. They kind of like the idea of of experiencing and enjoying some of the good things that God gives. But when it comes down to really obeying God's way, they jettison that. They don't want that at all. We're kind of like that a lot of the time, right? We love the blessings, but we don't always love the obedience. We love the things that flow from God's hand, but we're not always keen on doing His will. And again, there's a great contrast here between Cain and Abel. They were both needy people, desperate for the grace of God to sustain them. But Abel lived in humble dependence, bringing his best to God. All those things flowing from a heart of faith. Cain is the opposite. Cain is a person who seeks to live autonomously. Cain is a person who likes the blessings but doesn't want to do things God's way. But even God here, despite his anger, despite the justice that he's about to bring to bear on Cain, still shows some mercy. Cain is worried that as the earth begins to be further populated, that the horror of what he's done, the story of what he's done will be spread, and he'll be killed, murdered. But God says, I don't want to let that happen. I won't let that happen. So he puts some kind of mark on Cain, just conjecture. We don't know what it is, so we won't try to explore that. But something which distinguished Cain for who he was. And he says, if anybody kills you, 
then I'm going to rain judgment upon them and seven times worse than what you've done to your brother. Isn't it interesting here that Cain is so much more concerned about the consequences now of his sin than about what he just did? Think about that. He, he just doesn't want to have a hard life. And he's worried about retribution. But he wasn't worried about his righteous brother that he just slain out of sheer rage. So the consequences of sin here show up in Cain's heart. He followed the pattern of his parents, not cherishing life. He followed the pattern of his parents and not listening to God and living in dependence upon Him. He followed the example of Satan, his father, who was a murderer and a destroyer, an autonomous person who thought he did not need God and sought to establish his own rule. And much like his parents and much like Satan, he became irrational. He became hardened. He became calloused. And now God sends him away to a land called Nod, which means wandering. And they go further and further away from Eden. Further and further away from the life of paradise and perfection. But this is not the worst of it. The worst is yet to come, which is why we see in verses 17 through 24 the progression of sin. Frankly, we've already seen this. There's a progression from Adam and Eve to Cain, and now there's going to be a progression from Cain to his offspring. Several of his offspring are mentioned here. This is probably not at all complete. It's just selective. But there's seven generations down to Lamech. That's significant often in the Bible. Sometimes we can make too much of numbers, but often in the Bible there's some significance. There's seven generations here that are mentioned, which demonstrates fullness. What's the full fruit of Cain's offspring? His name is Lamech. Now, from Lamech, some good things came. Some progression in human culture. Moses just kind of mentions those things incidentally. But the main thing he wants to say about this seventh generation son is that he was worse than his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain. He says to his wives, there's a man who struck me, punched me, but I killed him. So think about this. Cain, out of frustration that God accepted his brother's sacrifice because it came from a heart of faith, rose up and killed his brother. Seemingly, God had already established that if a person commits homicide, there should be consequences. But Lamech had not experienced homicide. He's still walking around, living and breathing. No one had killed him. He had just been struck. But now, he takes up the prerogative of God and seeks to kill this man on his own, and he did. And notice that he brags about it. At least Cain didn't do that. And then he says, if somebody would have killed Cain, the justice upon that killer would have been sevenfold. But if anybody kills me, it'll be seventy-sevenfold. It'll be way worse because I'm way more justified even than Cain was. See what Lamech's doing here? Lamech is 
further hardened. You look at Adam and Eve and you think, how could they have become so hardened? I mean, it couldn't get any worse than that. And you look at Cain and you think, it does get worse. And then you look at Lamech and you say, it just keeps getting worse. And frankly, we're going to see this all the way through chapter 6, where God says, enough! And he wipes the world clean with a global flood. Now, in a sense, I guess we have to say, if we're decent theologians, that anybody is capable, really, of anything. That surprises us from time to time when we see evil welling up inside of us and we do things we never thought we would do. And just when we think that nothing else will surprise us, and by that I mean evil, we hear about more heinous evil. So which is it? Are we, are we all so corrupted that we're all as evil as we can be? Or is it that humanity gets worse and worse and worse? I think it's kind of both. Occasionally, you'll hear somebody say, you know, it's worse than it's ever been. Humanity's never been as sinful as it is now. And you think back to the garden, you think Adam and Eve had perfection and the ability not to sin, and they still gave in. Does it get worse than that? Does it get worse than Cain, who murdered his brother, who had done nothing to him? Does it get worse than Lamech? who became so hardened, such a lover of self that, that the life that dwelt in another person meant nothing to him. I guess in some ways we can say it's always been really, really bad ever since the fall. And yet at the same time, there is progression. You see this in Paul's writings, particularly in Romans chapter 1. God created the world in great perfection. Humanity did not want to deal with that, so they suppressed that truth and then God gave them up to themselves, and then what do they do? There's a progression of sin there in that passage. Mankind just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And as we talked about in our exposition of Romans several years ago now, what you see going on in Romans chapter 1 is just implosion. I used this illustration way back when we went through that passage, but I remember when Riverfront Stadium, which is where the Reds played from like the 70s through the 80s and 90s, um, Whenever, I remember whenever they built the new ballpark and they destroyed the old one, that they set charges all around it. It was an open ring, essentially. And they showed it on the news. It was a Sunday morning. I remember this. It was before worship service. And they blew the charges, and the, the whole ring of the stadium just kind of collapsed in on itself and just kind of went like that. It was, it was really fascinating. But I've never forgotten that, and it, I think it demonstrates what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1, and it's what we see here in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. When, when God lets us have our own way, it's really the worst judgment he can give us. And, and then we just do this. We just kind of collapse in on ourselves. Now, our focus is in on ourselves because we worship self, but also we just, we just destroy one another. And whereas humanity once thrived under God's presence, and his face shined on them and brought them life and hope and all things good. Now they cower in dark places, and they've become sinister and twisted and mutated, and they've turned from him. So this passage proclaims to us that sin is powerful, seeking to destroy us. We see the consequences of sin whenever we give ourselves over to it and don't trust God. 
we're going to do horrible things to ourselves and to each other. And we do see the progression. If sin is not kept in check, it will bring destruction. And yet there is hope. And that's what we see in verses 25 and 26. It's surprising in Genesis chapter 3 that after God gives curses, He brings blessing. And you might think as you read Genesis chapter 4, why didn't God just say enough is enough? This is not going to work out. Well, it's because He gave a promise. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3.15. He promised Eve that He would bring about redemption. So in Act chapter 4, I'm sorry, not Act chapter 4. I, I broke this down into Acts today. This is Act 4. In Act 4 of this passage, we find verses 25 and 26, and these verses proclaim to us that there is hope. So Adam knew his wife again. So we've gone kind of chronologically through Cain's line, and then now we go back in time, probably not long after Abel had been killed. And she bore a son, Eve did, and called his name Seth. Now remember, her name was Eve because she was the mother of all living. And now another son is born to her, and his name is Seth. And notice what she says about this boy. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She's remembering God's promise in Genesis 3.15. She's saying the Almighty, the covenant-keeping God, the Lord God, He's going to keep His promises to us. He promised us He would not let it end like this. And though I feel sin welling up within me, though I struggled in submitting to my husband, though I struggle to love my children, though I lust, though I'm prideful, yet I hope in my God. And one day this has to be undone. For a moment, perhaps, she lost hope because the son who was following after God that the seed, the righteous one, he was gone. And perhaps initially she looked at this and said, things are so bad, maybe God can't keep his promises. Maybe he's not strong enough. Maybe, maybe he's had enough of us and he's not merciful enough. But God proved himself to be strong enough and certainly merciful enough because he gives another seed And of course, then Seth has seed, which we'll talk about in chapter 5 next week. But though the primary bulk of this chapter is dark and discouraging, this last little mention here at the end of the chapter shines a, a stark beam of light into the darkness. And Adam and Eve recognized it. All around them was brokenness, and yet God persists with His promises of grace. So what do we take away from a chapter like this? Well, if you live independently of God, if you seek your own way and you have not submitted to Christ, then you have no power to restrain yourself from sin. It will seek to destroy you, and left unchecked, it will lead to terrible decisions. Left unchecked, the progression will lead to disaster 
But even those of us who belong to Christ, which of course would be most of us here this morning, in many ways it's the same. Though we have the ability now as born-again New Covenant Christians, we still must choose to obey. Grace does not obey for us. Grace merely gives us the power to obey. You see, it's okay to struggle. It is normal to struggle with lust and anger and pride and a host of other sins. But it is not okay not to fight. That is why a passage like Romans chapter 6 is such hope for us. We now have the power not to obey as those that are united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, we are to walk in newness of life, and we do so by the power of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8. A passage like Genesis chapter 4 should worry God's children. It should cause us to look inside and and recognize the darkness that is there. It should cause us to recognize that we do really evil things, but we can respond like Cain and reject God's words, or we can respond like Abel and depend upon him in humility. You see, God came to Cain and spoke directly, but he does so today through his word which is why we sang the song before the sermon today. Speak, O Lord. Words that will echo down through eternity. We read these words today and, and we hear. Will we live in dependence upon the one who can restrain sin? Will we live in an absolute hum, humble dependence upon the one who can help us obey him and bring him glory? Or will we live like Abel's brother and, and do things our own way? It's okay to struggle. It's not okay not to fight. And we fight in the power of the Spirit so that the power of sin, though real, will not reign over us. And therefore, the consequences and progression will not be true of us. And why is all that possible? Because of the hope of seed. And of course, the seed that would come, which would crush the head of the anti-God, the one who brings hope to rebels, the rescuer, Jesus our Savior, came and did that which we could not do, obey God perfectly, and sacrifice himself to take upon himself our punishment and offer us instead his righteousness. You see, in the midst of all this rebellion, rescue is promised. And though Adam and Eve and Abel And Seth looked prospectively to the cross. We now look retrospectively back to the cross. And it is still our hope so that sin will not rule over us. And the original design for creation where image bearers walk and live and move and have their being in dependence upon God, reflecting forth His great attributes, the original design is restored in Jesus and in Jesus' people. In Cain, the image of God becomes further marred, and his offspring depict this. But through Seth, life will come again. And now, as Jesus' people, the image of God is restored so that we might glorify Him and that we might enjoy Him for forever.
So this passage holds much for us. Some of it dark, certainly lots of warning, but also a shining beam of hope. And that's what the Scriptures do over and over and over again. If you seek to live independently of God, expect this, and it is bad. But if you will live in humble dependence upon Him, through Jesus the Rescuer, you can enjoy God and live according to the original design. It's a beautiful passage. I hope you find warning in it, as I have. And yet, I hope you find hope in it, that you look to Jesus and you trust Him as the one who alone is making all things new and one day will make all things new and come and dwell over us in a place where there will be no more murder, no more hatred, no more rebellion, no more pride, but we will live in happy and humble dependence upon Him for forever. But that has been initiated already. So trust in your Savior today to be restrained from sin that you might bring Him glory and that you might enjoy Him. Let's stand together.